And let's not start talking about the book this early in the podcast, Francine. That's not what that's not on brand for us. No, no. What would people write us about if not our absurd rambling intros? How's your week been? Uh oh yeah, Dad got me um an iPad for my birthday. So I've been learning to use Procreate, like digital art stuff. That's been really fun. Nice. How about you? Your week? Well, I spent the first two days melting because Yeah, that did happen, yeah. Because it was like 39 degrees, which England's not built for. Um, but yeah, apart from that, it's been good. I've been babysitting, um, mm-hmm. which is fun. I got to do a bunch of Pokemon origami yesterday, which is very exciting for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you I said a good Gengar. Gengar. Love that. Do you have that to hand? No, no, it's not, okay. it's not mine. <laughs> I, I, I let him keep it. Oh, that seems fun. Um, and San Diego, San Diego Comic Con's happening right now, which means mm-hmm. lots of news is coming out about various nerdy properties. So all of that's very exciting for me. Oh, cool. Anything good? Many trailers, a couple of trailers have come out now for Rings of Power, which I'm very hyped for. Ooh. That's the Second Age Lord of the Rings type series. Trailers for House of Dragon, which looks really good. I'm very hyped for that, which is the Game of Thrones prequel series that's coming out about the same time as Rings of Power. Yep, yep. So I'm sure that'll be a ratings battle. Ah, and they'll be constantly compared, despite the only thing they've really got in common is they're very fantasy things. Oh, yeah, the yeah. Balrog looks so cool. Right, um, no way from that trailer right now. Close tab. Okay, <laughs> I'm responsible. So, yes, hype for that. Uh, and lots of Marvel stuff, especially lots of um, animated Marvel stuff that all seems very fun. What is your favourite Marvel movie? Oh, that's difficult. I'm not sure I could answer that off the top of my head. Okay. Thor, Thor Ragnarok is definitely up there because that one's camp and silly and has Jeff Goldblum in there. For the record, um, Joanna. <laughs> you'll regret getting me this <laughs> audio I, listeners audio listeners listeners my 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 hands are currently clutching a little reporter's notebook that joanna got me oh uh, yeah um i really like the ragnarok i really liked the black widow movie less for the black widow movie and more for introducing florence Pugh as yelena because she's my new favorite character ah. um, all i know about florence Pugh is the memes that came out after midsummer because she has an amazing frown She's just got an amazing face. <laughs> yeah. She's completely delightful and I love her. Oh, even if I think it's kind of weird that she's dating Zach, Zach Braff, I just feel like she could do better. Who's that? Oh, no, I know Zach Braff. Scrubs. Scrubs. The Scrubs yeah. guy. Yeah. Oh. But she's like our age. Yeah. Yeah, I like those. I like the Marvel movies. I like the TV shows more, I think. Mm-hmm. I enjoy all the kind of, ooh, what's going to happen next? What's this all about? I think I'm more excited for upcoming ones than any of the ones I've seen. The prettiest one by far, though, Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings. Just mm. fucking gorgeous to look at. Is that Chinese? Yes. Yeah. Tons of like weird, cool CGI creatures and animals, and it's nice. just stunning. It's really pretty. Cool. Um, I've got, I've got, with the iPad actually, three free months of Apple TV. Ooh, ooh, so ooh, what am watch. I going to watch? Mythic Quest, Mythic Quest, Mythic, mythic Quest. Quest. Okay, actually, uh, hold on. I'm going to write these down, not just use it as a prop. <laughs> mythic uh, Quest. Mythic Quest. Um, Ted Lasso, lots of people love. I'm not sure mm-hmm. how much you'll enjoy it, but I'd recommend giving it a go. It's it's heartwarming. Um, um, I've, I've had plenty of recommendations, so I don't mind trying it. Yeah, yeah it is good. It's good fun. Uh, what else? Oh, The Essex Serpent, which I'm only halfway through at the moment, mm-hmm. which is... Have you read the book, haven't you? Yeah, very the Essex Serpent. Yeah, it's very good, and it's Claire Danes and Tom Hiddleston. And God, I could look at Claire Danes for a very long time. She's so beautiful. I love her. And Tom Hiddleston. And Tom Hiddleston. I He's also one of your, your. I, I feel like that kind of goes without saying that. Oh, Tom that's Hiddleston's true. Yeah, yeah. Like it's like one of the obvious up. references. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like yes, Claire obviously. Danes. Obviously, <laughs> obviously, I want to stare at Tom Hiddleston, but also yeah. Claire Danes. Um, 
Oh, and Severance Dick- good. Have you watched Severance yet? I haven't watched Severance yet. That's on my list. I'm, okay. I've heard really good things about it. And Dickinson's really fun. What's that? It's about Emily Dickinson, but it's it's sort of historical, but with like lots of modern music and jokes. Jane okay. Krakowski's in it as her mum. Hayley Steinfeld plays Emily Dickinson. Wiz Khalifa plays Death. That sounds like something I will watch on my lunch breaks, not with Jack. It's very gay. I will enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel cool. like I really need to clarify it's very gay. Also, they make fun of Ernest Hemingway. Yeah. All right. That's five full shows. That'll keep me going for three months. Thank you. Yep. But yeah, if, if you're only going to watch one, then definitely Mythic Quest. That's my fave. Yes. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. That's the one that's like D&D based, right? No, it's more or like tabletop um, gaming. they work at a company that makes an MMO RPG. Oh, so like a World of Warcraft type thing, but mm-hmm. it's the company making it. And it's Rob McElhenney and Danny Pudi and... Rob McElhenney. McElhenney. McElhenney, thank you. You'll like for other reasons, because he has spoken out against the Hollywood and general TV nonsense making um, actors change their bodies dramatically. For oh, like, He I did a whole that. bit on It's Always Sunny, like a multi-season bit where he put on a bunch of weight for one season yeah and like made it a joke through the whole thing and then for the next season got super fucking buff he just thought like that would be funny and then (laughs) like used the media stuff to like talk about how it's like yeah no anyone can do it as long as you spend 12 hours a day on it can afford a personal trainer i can do this and that and i'm happy with the fact it's probably gonna wreck my body for ages yeah (laughs) okay yeah no i love him i love him (laughs) at least it's not as hard as it was i did all right with the the old ice cubes in front of the fan thing that made a pretty good ad hoc aircon Oh, I just closed all my curtains and windows and died. Mm. But Thank you for resurrecting yourself in time for our recording. I like the idea that you would auto-shriek it, but instead of like blood, what would be in your little vial to make you come back? Because I've done a ton of writing this week, I'm going to say ink and be a total Oh yeah, the link cartridge. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, but realistically, it's more likely to be gin. Gin or espresso, yeah. Yeah. Espresso martini, done. Yeah, espresso martini. <laughs> gross. Not gross because it's gross, just gross because I thought of the most wanky thing ever there, sorry. <laughs> Mine it would definitely be. just be shit instant coffee, so it's fine. Yeah. That is just life without recording studios. Yes, well, eventually, one day, when I'm very wealthy, when I've married well. Yes. <laughs> any eccentric billionaires listening to this podcast that aren't Elon Musk? Hit Joanna up. Yeah, hit me up. I mean, even Elon Musk, if he promises to die, like, on the wedding night. Or even if he promises to, like, just never be in the same room as me after the wedding. Mm, I don't know. I think that's the agreement he and Grimes had, and that didn't work out well. No, no, they still had a child, didn't they? Yeah, and named it unpronounceable string of letters. But password safe. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Getting a password manager to keep track of your children. Love it. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. Um, do you want to make a podcast? I do want to make a podcast. I've been looking forward to this one so much. <laughs> I'm really, I, I am excited, but I've only had two coffees so far today, so I'm going to go grab a third. Okay, yeah, good idea. Hello and welcome to The Two Shall Make You Fret, a podcast in which we're reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discord series, one at a time in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen. And I'm Francine Carroll. And this is part three of The Truth. Yeah, it is. Now it's the whole truth and nothing but a lot of things other than the truth because we can't control ourselves. Absolutely not. Note on spoilers before we crack on. We're a spoiler light podcast, obviously heavy spoilers for the book The Truth, but we will avoid spoiling any major future events in the Discworld series and we're saving any and all discussion of the final Discworld novel until we get there so you, dear listener, can come on the journey with us. Tunnelling up through somebody else's office floor. 
Perfect. At some point, I want to go back through all of our episodes and collate all of your journey lines so I can try and actually map this journey. Well, I straight up refuse to plan them in advance, so I'm not going to be happy about about how they sound. But okay, yes, that sounds fun. (laughs) I'll only do it when I need to procrastinate something important. If someone gives me a deadline, that'll get done. Have you got anything to follow up on, Francine? I've got a couple of emails. Mm, Do you want to do your emails first? Yes. Because mine are book related. From Craig... Mm-hmm. Uh, I apologize. I'm not going to read all of this out. It's not Craig's fault, but because this came through our website f- feedback, it's not formatted. It's a very large block of text. Fun. <laughs> Craig was writing to tell us about, uh, we talked about a game where Celtic lost to an underdog team. <laughs> yeah, I read that email. <laughs> uh, I'm standing by it just to be a dick. <laughs> <laughs> Craig has uh, told us the story of that game in particular and some of the context around it. And uh, has contested our comment that the underdogs beat the then football giants, Celtic, because they are not then giants; they are still giants. I, sh- ah. I should have, I should have worded it top of their game. I don't know. It's when they were fucking like massive on an international stage, and I, yes. I believe they're still obviously a very big team. I'm sorry. Um, thank you for some... sharing the blame. There, that was a we. That was a the the uh, the Times believes that. <laughs> <laughs> The truth shall make you fret, believes. <laughs> Look, I have no skin in this game. That's fair. Um, who else? Uh, James Compton wanted to send some fun headlines. Ooh. Uh, one from 1986, possibly from the Times, Foot Heads Arms Body, in reference to Michael Foot being made the head of a nuclear disarmament committee. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, which, great concept. Uh, I'm only 19, though soon to be 20, so I wasn't alive at the time to read it. I became aware of it after a game of Trivial Pursuit, in which it features as a question. My family should probably update our version of the game, since it still thinks Tony Blair is the Prime Minister. <laughs> um, other clever bits of language. The batsman's holding the bowler's willy, of course. Um, I don't understand cricket, but I assume that's funny. Sure, that sounds like it might be. And... Um, a uh, possible headline from the sun over the shoulder bowler bowls over and over the shoulder boulder holder molder um in reference to a cricket player having a relationship with a lady who made a fortune making bras oh it's more uh which just side note that i saw a fun twitter conversation that was trying to find the origins of the phrase over the shoulder boulder holder the other day yeah it was inter- it was like a generational thing as well they were like oh anyone under the age of 40 even know that i was like there must be a little there's a little window there of those of us who got it from george nicholson books right yeah definitely but they were talking about older films but they were referencing something from the 80s and i think it's earlier than that i think i know Ivor biggin has a song where he sings about an over-the-shoulder boulder holder Ah. so or a similar comedy act in my head it's Ivor biggin you should write a book about it hmm? you should write a book about it Write a book about Ivor Biggin <laughs> and Over the Shoulder Boulder Holders. Yeah. <laughs> Biggin like one bras. of the most niche esoteric books. <laughs> you know I'd buy it. Not, not just because not just you're my friend. That's the kind of shit I want on my bookshelf. Um, so yeah, that was those were fun. Thank you for that, James. He also recommended a subreddit, Word Avalanches. Oh, thank you. Hold on. That before I we'll forget. go and get heavily invested in. Oh, and we got a message on Facebook as well. Oh, nice. Incredibly contrived setups for uh, homophonic, 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 homophonic punchlines. Not homophobic, not homophonic. <laughs> uh, Caitlin on Facebook uh, sent us the article that may have inspired the woman who gave birth to the cobra. 
which mm. is the story of Mary Toft, who convinced doctors that she'd oh, given yeah. birth to rabbits. So I'll pop a link to that in the show notes. Anyway, sorry, did you have, you had actual book follow-up, didn't you? Speaking of headlines, in fact, I, I found this practic quote in, from 2002 in a forum. Leaving aside differences in the way people read, anyone who has ever been a newspaper sub-editor develops a special sense for puns and, especially, double entendres, usually to avoid them turning up where they shouldn't, as in the famous World War II headline, Russians push bottles up German rear. Amazing. Also, we were talking about proofs, mm-hmm. and vaguely related to that, I found another discussion. I was in the forums very deep to, to like look at practice on journalism, which we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. Spoilers. No, not spoiler. Foreshadow, listeners. <laughs> signposting whatever um there's an interesting discussion about the changes made to american versions of the book and copy editors decisions stuff like that um which i'll link to in the show notes it's um yeah practically being fair pretty fair-minded about the whole thing actually considering he's clearly very annoyed uh i feel as he like- always is on the internet <laughs> I feel like we can't mention this without mentioning the iconic German publishers of sorcery putting a soup advert in the middle of the book. Oh, yes, that was beautiful. Which remains my favourite Pratchett, well, not one of my favourite Pratchett anecdotes. Finally, I'm going to read out a passage from The Life and Times of the Thunderbolt Kid, which isn't the one I was trying to find. If I find it later, I'll read it out. But um, it's Bill Bryson's dad, who is a fantastic baseball writer, and I just wanted to give you a taste of that. As mm-hmm. I said, two episodes ago now. Dodger reliever Ralph Franker threw a pitch that made history yesterday. Unfortunately, it made history for someone else. Bobby Thompson, the flying Scotsman, swatted Branker's second offering over the left field wall for a game-winning home run so momentous, so startling, that it was greeted with a moment's stunned silence. Then, when the realisation of the miracle came, the double-decked stands of the polo grounds rocked on their 40-year-old foundations. The Giants had won the pennant, completing one of the unlikeliest comebacks baseball has ever seen. Amazing. Like, I would read those columns on baseball. So yeah, uh, previously on? Yes, Francie. Yeah, cool. Sorry. What happened? What happened last time on the truth? Well, previously on the truth, William wheedles his way into a crime scene in the oblong office. He's quickly kicked out, but not before sussing out enough for a scoop. But where's Waffles? Vimes and Deward are both desperate to interview the tottering terrier. William follows a mysterious lead while hundreds of dogs, etc., descend on the Times. This issue ends with a full-blown fracas. Fracas, fracas, fuck, I put it in there again. Why didn't I just say rumpus? As two thugs of indeterminate virtue pop in, get papped, and push off, beheading the paparazzo and leading a stampede of insorted animals. William is confused and doubtful. Vimes is confused and pissed off. Who watches the watchman watch the word? We do, in part three. Nice. The only handover I've ever done, I think. So I'm going to ruin by having a swig of coffee before I try and read this out. Oh, no, that's fine. So. Suspense. In part three of The Truth, Hin, unaccustomed as I am. (laughs) Sorry, let me get my Tory power stance on. I'm the next Prime Minister. (laughs) Legs akimbo. (laughs) Hot potato off straws plucked to make amends. Ah, Sorry. Right. None of this should be in the episode. In part three of The Truth. 
Pin and Tulip hide in an empty mansion and plot to get out of Dodge. As the Misbegot gang save a sack of terriers, Will heads to the apothecary for strong sense to get the werewolf off his tail. Unfollowed, he finds Deep Bone at the stables and makes a plan to meet Waffles. Meanwhile, the printing dwarves take a walk in the Inquirer's cellars and find a miserable dibbler making headlines. Gaspode needs a disguise and Saccharissa goes to get a dress as William goes to see a dog about a man. Trixie Bell the Poodle leads him to the Misbegotten Misfits while an assaulted angler has Vimes unhappy. William interviews Waffles, whose Ron's had all along, and learns that there were two veterinaries in the room that day. Pin and Tulip blackmail Slant and threaten him with fire as they acquire the funds for the firm to fuck off. Slant sends a letter to a lord as William takes the misbegots to the office and Pin gets spiritual and plans to slay Otto. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Because he's getting Pens. spiritual. Because it's Pin. <laughs> Sorry. Depends Throwing how much... Back. <laughs> Depends how much lead he's inhaled. Oh, yeah. At the big house, Saccharissa and Rocky spot footprints in the dust before finding a tipsy Charlie and the new firm arrive and get excited. Will makes it back to the office only to find Pin and Tulip holding Saccharissa hostage and an arrow hits a lamp starts a fire. Waffles gets out as tins explode and the press starts to burn. Pin and Tulip get trapped in the cellar as the press melts and salamanders wake. Silver rain falls as the dark eels flash and Pin kills Tulip for somewhere to stand. Tulip crosses the black sands and his life flashes before others' eyes while the fire dies down. William and Saccharissa try optimism as they pick through the wreckage, but they're pressless and unprintable now. Pin rises from the ashes and William stops him with a spike just as Otto returns. Will searches Pin, finding the organiser imp, a hefty handful of jewels and his old home address. He hears something familiar from the imp and heads out to borrow a press. Over at the Inquirer's office, Cripslock threatens Carney and with a handful of rubies gets hold of a press. William tells his story as the storm hits and heads to see his father instead of naming names. Gaspode interferes and Otto wants to help. Meanwhile, in the afterlife, Tulip heads off to reincarnate as Pin arrives with a potato. William arrives at the mansion and confronts his father and almost finds himself exiled by violence until Otto drops in and shows impressive self-restraint. William stands by his choice to not tell the whole truth as he speaks to Vimes and demands a lawyer. Slant gets him out and things get settled and the morning papers announce veterinary's innocence. At the palace, with Veterinary back in office, William writes things down and Vimes gets commended. And one week later, the papers hire new writers and Veterinary visits. He will, of course, be attending the, the King wedding. William and Saccharissa head for lunch, but a brewery crash brings a new headline. The press never rests. Very good. <laughs> okay, helicopter and loincloth watch. Uh, hailstones the size of golf balls, possibly. They're on helicopter duty. Because oh. I wouldn't try and fly a helicopter through hailstones the size of golf balls. I see. Yeah, no, got it. That they excuse they explain the lack of actual helicopters, yes. which otherwise would of course be in abundance. Yes, exactly. Got it. Um, and we don't have loincloths. We have lovely ball gowns instead, which I think makes a nice change from the usual loincloth. Super duper. Uh, um, other bits we keep track of. Death is here. Yes, there he turned up quite late in the book this time. He has, yeah, which I guess makes sense. Yeah, we don't have any when wizards. The deaths happen. Or yes, we haven't got wizards. Limes is getting up close and personal with the trousers of time uh and death of rats is here as well which always delights me yes remind me remind me mm-hmm. which other character got taken by the death of rats because we've talked about this before and i can't recall it was someone who had the annoying he 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 laugh because rats the death of rats does the sn 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 yes it was in soul music yes thank you it was, uh, he was part of the Guild of Musicians, wasn't he? Yeah, did he die? 
Well, I'm assuming so. Odd. I don't remember that book at all. Good grief. <laughs> well, re- well remember that detail, though. That would have never occurred to me. I was going through my head. I was like, Mort? No, that's not right. <laughs> well, Death of Rats didn't exist in Mort. Yeah. He doesn't no, exactly, come into existence yeah. till Reaper Man. Um, cool, cool, cool. Um, little follow-up on the weather. As you say, golf stone tail balls. That's right. I stand by that. Um, <laughs> um, I just... I I just wanted to again underline the drama of the weather while they're working through the night, shouting the words to get the newspaper Over out the on storm time. There, and the yeah. hailstones. Yes, yeah. I just thought that was fantastic. Um, yeah, bam, 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 bam. You can just again, it just grounds you in it, doesn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. super. You can hear hailstones on like a yeah. corrugated iron shed roof. Yeah, I also just like the idea of William going. I've got to find a golf ball. Because it reminded me of you going, I've got to find three copies of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I was trying to find more so I could average it out and therefore it would be a better data sample. Sorry, this is a very niche joke for people who've not listened to every episode. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, I think anyone who's listened to any episode can guess that that was just Joanna being very, very into getting this fact right for a bit. <laughs> wasn't even my fact. Um <sighs> But yes, no, I like the idea of the, the people of Ankh-Morpork who don't really care about whether or not someone actually gave birth to a snake. But if you report the weather wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which having just been through a record-breaking heatwave in the UK, that tracks. That really it is tracks. the whole suspension of disbelief thing, isn't it? It's like in a fantasy movie with somebody going, actually, I don't think that medieval people would have used a morning star in this century. They also like, what about the fucking dragon? Yeah. <laughs> That's a, that's a conversation that's happening at the moment, but I'm not going to go into that because I'm going to keep us on topic today. We're going to go to quotes. Cool, cool, cool. Silver beads appeared around the leaden, inky slugs. Letters shifted, settled, ran together. For a moment, the words themselves floated on the melting metal. Innocent words like thee and truth and shall make you fear. And then they were lost. From the red-hot press and the wooden boxes and amongst the racks and racks of type and even out of the piles of carefully stockpiled metal, thin streams began to flow. They met and merged and spread. Soon the floor was a moving, rippling mirror in which the orange and yellow flames danced upside down. And if that isn't a fantastic way to describe lead melting, I don't know what is. Uh, um, that was that was one of my potential quotes. I had so many marked for this section. Yeah. It's so good and so quotable. I know. And just for my own curiosity's sake, I looked up what molten lead looks like, and it's so liquid. It's not like I was imagining kind of a mercury type thing. Do you know what I mean? But no, it's, it's like silver water. Yeah, it's silver rain. Yeah, I was thinking like lava, where it looks a bit like honey. Mm. Uh, right, my bit. I'm going to edit a bit as I go along, so it's quite a long section. But God, I fucking love this moment. <laughs> I don't know what they say, Mr. Windling, but you know what they say, Mr. Windling. Why don't you tell us what they say, Mr. Windling? Why don't you tell us who told you, Mr. Windling? I'm very sorry about this, Mrs. Arcanum, said William, still holding the struggling man, but I want to know what everyone knows and I want to know how they know it. Mr. Windling? They say he's got some sort of lady friend who's very important in Uberwald and I'll thank you to let go of me. And that's it. What's so sinister about it? It's a friendly country. Oh, yes, but they say, as William stayed standing, breathing heavily, 
Well, I wrote the article in the Times, he snapped. And what's in there is what I say, me, because I found things out and checked things. And people who say ing a lot try to kill me. I'm not the man that's the brother of some man you met in the pub. I am not some stupid rumour put about to make trouble. So just remember that before you try any of that everyone knows stuff. And in an hour or so, I've got to go up to the palace and see Commander Vimes and whoever's the patrician and a lot of other people to get this whole thing sorted out. And it's not going to be very nice, but I'm going to have to do it because I want someone to know that things are important. I'm sorry about the teapot, Mrs. Arcanum. I'm sure it can be mended. <laughs> oh, good. Good ranting. I'm glad we both got a rant in. Both about Mr. Windling. <laughs> He's a very rantable character. Isn't he? Yes. What a provocation on, on legs. And speaking of characters. Oh, <laughs> we got some of those. That's We've for sure. Here are them. Let's talk about them. Let's start with Mr. Pin, who gets religion out of the Belatedly. horrifying after after the horrifying after effects of the photograph taken with the eels and all the him now seeing all of his screaming victims uh, yeah not great not great no uh, i do like uh, i want to shout out his wallet saying not a very nice person at all i'm assuming it's another pulp fiction reference because the one of the guys in that has like bad motherfucker or something on his wallet <laughs> But I now kind of, obviously I don't aspire to be anything like Mr. Pin, but I kind of want a wallet that says not a very nice person at all. Noted. <laughs> it's just watching his kind of terrifying, he's a terrifying character through the whole book, but in the first two sections, he's very in control of everything. And watching character his, regression, isn't it? Yeah, watching his breakdown is just great. The bit, uh, one of my potential other quotes is when he's, uh, threatening Mr. Slant, especially with fire, and he's just sort of this hypnotised, I mean, this is a bad thing, but it's not that bad. It's it's like the opposite of exponential, isn't it? Like one killing's yeah. bad, and then the next killing's half as bad. And uh, Diminishing returns. Yes. But that's you. probably a mathematical one, is that? Yeah. 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 It's exponential. No, no. Yeah, sure. <laughs> In- internential. Uh, intranential. Yeah, sure. I'm sure a listener's no, going to send isn't the same as extra. Never mind. It's fine. Let's go. <laughs> oh, prefix. Why do you elude me? Oh, prefaces. Prefaces, prefaces. Wherefore did you go? Wherefore did you go? <laughs> and yeah, you watch him have this breakdown that culminates in him in the cellar with Mr. Tulip and Mr. Tulip kind of trying to cheer him up with Remember all those people we scragged? It's like, yes, I fucking do. Oh, Mr. Tulip's trying to be a good friend. He's trying to help. And Mr. Pin takes his potato. Right, okay. Okay. I just want to say, I don't understand why they couldn't both use the potato. Why did he have to steal his potato? Could he not have shot him and then he's got his potato when he died, then taken his potato? I mean, that would have made more sense, but I feel like this had the better I'm, I'm sure he wasn't feeling rational, but I just... If he just stopped, I, to I think just read it. Calmly. I was like, "Why would you?" Yeah, it's such a weird way to like. If you're trying to make up for things, I feel like betraying your only friend in as he dies is going to take off. You know, probably not as many as all the horrible murders, but some karma points. <laughs> yeah, but then he's not thinking about karmically. He's literally just thinking he needs to have a potato and he will be okay. Yeah, like, he is completely self-absorbed at that point, it, which is great. And obviously, you get to the reincarnation moment and the way death interacts with him differently with, with Tulip of. Okay, I feel like I can make you be sorry eventually. Yeah. And you had the idea of your potato, which is what you believed, and that's important. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Pin, it's like, 
just gonna turn you into a fucking potato yeah if you've come in here pretending to repent yeah whereas just... tulip i feel like obviously that but it's interesting because having that much sympathy for a character who was a monster is a very clever thing to do but it's like as he turns up in the afterlife he's his he's got a clear head for the first time in decades hasn't he yeah and i feel like it's interesting it's kind of built up before um before he goes before he dies that you get these kind of weird little flashbacky moments to mm. the potato based religion of this kind of um there were forests candles and secrets yeah the uh, the, the potato thing itself i assume is it's like a because obviously they were living through a famine and a war um that all sounds very slavic i'm guessing it's like comes from the idea of having a seed potato yes to, to get you through the next um the next crop whatever and yeah. obviously he's then taken that to mean religion um because I, I it wasn't that long ago i listened to i think it was a behind the Bastards series on um the irish famine mm-hmm. um or the irish british led deliberate starvation uh, yeah <laughs> and one of the things that killed so many people in i think it was the second or third possibly year of the crisis was even when the blight had receded yeah they'd eaten their seed potatoes yeah they because didn't there have... were no other potatoes to eat and, and they didn't have anything to start yeah. the growth again yeah so yeah always have your, your potato agreed but these moments of um, going, sorry, we've gone into tulip a bit now. Here, oh, sorry, these yeah. Moments of <laughs> they sort of overlap. Con- they, they very much overlap. Is sort of the connoisseur of lives thing. Mm. This mm. idea of while tulip's been a connoisseur of everything, death has kept all of these lives, and now tulip, seeing his life as it flashes before other people's eyes. Yeah. But I think he there is a redeemability in his character because there's this trauma from his past that when he comes into the afterlife and he can see clearly he can kind of acknowledge yeah he he was sent in a direction and maybe a lot of his like editing out the bad memories is also what led to snorting laundry powder yeah. i'm probably thinking about this way too deeply well it's interesting isn't it because we're given tulip's redemption arc as it were um but we don't know pin's background we're left to just ima- imagine that perhaps he had no excuse for being how he was or no um, we don't know if there is the potential of a similar redemption arc in there. No, at, at the end of the day, all that mattered was that when Tulip died, he was ready to learn and uh, Pin wasn't. But then again, maybe after a life as a potato, Pin will be able to try again uh, with uh, the repenting or whatever. I don't know how it works. How bad can you be name. as a potato? <laughs> You're at least, you've at least got to come out of that neutral, haven't you? <laughs> I've met some. I've met some terrible potatoes. <laughs> oh. Actually, going from Pin and Tulip onto William, and one mm-hmm. thing that I feel like isn't very interrogated, and this does happen sometimes, pressure because William does kill Pin, which is fair. It's mm. in self. I'm not saying this makes William a nasty character. It's in self defense. He he doesn't mean to do it. Mm. But and I know there's a lot going on at that moment, but you don't really see him processing the bit where he's taken part in ending a life. No, I wonder if that'll happen later for him yeah i feel like he's gonna have like some extra i hope he gets some therapy yeah i, f- I found a long comment from pratchett about william Dewar's kind of uh character progress through basically he was saying that uh his, his kind of character progression 
isn't necessarily good and it doesn't have to be good. And one of the commenters was saying, well, why doesn't, you know, when William DeWord interferes with Vimes, he's in the wrong. And Pratchett says, well, unfortunately, William has not been in a position to read the earlier Discworld books, which is kind of what we were saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yes, Pratchett's basically saying William is trying to define various things and there is character progression but by the time he appears in the next book he might he might be even harder and even more arrogant and that's like <laughs> i do like the fact that the protagonists don't have to be morally sound to be liked we've, yeah. and we've talked about that a bit but there's a mm. difference between william and vimes yeah. especially and i mean he's not immoral he is morally sound i'd say he's just not perfect yeah which is yeah. fine yeah we can't all be carrots that's the name of my new indie band <laughs> But uh, such a good writing moment when uh, William hears the recording and the like and run around Ooh, the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's there's no adjectives. It's just he pressed the button. He pressed the button again. He pressed the button. Yep, 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 yep. And you can, but you can see it so clearly in your mind, yeah. can't you? The total you shell shock realization. Yeah. You can definitely hear it. The yeah. dead silence before he rewinds it. Yeah, and us getting to know that and understand it while watching Sakarissa being like, what the fuck? And kind of figuring it out a yeah. few pages later as well, yeah. where she does the... So you don't get on with your father. <laughs> Just remembering what you said about that quote, yeah. Uh, yeah. How you going? How you going, bud? <laughs> oh yeah, and William with the sword as well. I thought that was a nice little aside that gives you a lot about his character. He was very good at the swordsmanship stuff at Huddlestones oh, yeah. because that was one where you had to slow down and think but you get a nice little chunk of his arrogance there like he obviously thought of himself as above Hugglestones for a fairly good reason yes but yeah for sure you get the I, I yeah I, I love that even though he is like obviously he's separated from his father and he doesn't live the life of aristocracy Pratchett hasn't given him like this perfect and now I've separated myself from that kind of person it's like no he grew up in incredible privilege being told he was above others and that doesn't completely leave you if you grow up like that no he is still very yeah. much that person but yeah. uh, he gets a really good interaction with Otto about it later on after they've kind of dealt with Lord DeWord and he does this Oh God, did I say thank you? He's like, no, but you noticed you didn't say thank yeah, you. So we get better a little bit every day. Love that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's, uh, did I, sorry, I was just going to say, did I put this later? I don't think I did actually. The, the That whole moment actually made me think of a, a conversation we had a few episodes, many episodes back. Um, I th might have been one of the first episodes. Where we were talking about the two different types of villain, the, the lawful evil and the... As uh, fucking psychopath, as I believe the D and D uh, yeah. terminology is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it might have been like Fantastics. We were talking about um, the character that Tim Curry played. Yeah, versus the in the film. Yeah, um, and then Tryman. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and yeah, just the the you've got the pin and tulip, chaotic Chaos. evil, and the rust and Downey and Deward, um, yeah. a trio of posh lawful twats yes the privilege literally yes. the private law twats yeah, yeah. <sighs> oh. um, the moment where slant saying oh you know send this note to the word which one not the one not with the newspaper. One. Oh my god <laughs> jesus <laughs> which is I, I, it's like, like almost, accidentally almost sending it to the wrong contact on your phone isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> which i am so paranoid about mm. um 
Yeah, that's such a, because that's kind of a big reveal moment as well. Like it's been so clearly hinted that it's Lord the Word, but I think mm. that might be one of the first times it's actually said. But it's not a big ta-da because, yeah. like, of course, the audience is worked out by this point because they're not stupid. Yeah, for sure. We've not got Poirot sitting there going, "It was the Word." <laughs> I feel like, like that little confirmation is like, "Yes, you were right. I wasn't fucking with you." <laughs> yeah. It is that. It is that yeah. posh twat, not another posh twat. <laughs> Oh. He is oh, it's a bit, good though. feeling character. What where he's confronting William mm. and this the guys from the estate start coming in and he's just very calmly talking about exiling him. Yeah. I and do like, like he the- puts his hand on his sword. And William's like, right, okay. Cool. Confirms it. You are just total trash. Fantastic. Yeah. That one moment where he does wobble where he learns that someone tried to kill William though. Oh yeah, no, that is a moment, isn't it? That's a very good moment. And again, Pratchett is not writing extreme. Like, not, well, he is writing extremes, but not writing like a fully doesn't care about his son cartoon. Yeah, like, it's, uh, he, he writes the grey areas very yeah, well. Yes. Very well. Yes. He, he yes, even gives like the big fuck off villain a little bit of grey. Yes. Just a little bit. Yes. A delicate and now bit off with you. Ears. I'm blackmailing you. Excellent. Uh, and then on to slightly more fun characters. Oh, yes. uh, Charlie. Oh, Charlie. Oh, Charlie. Glad you're feeling better now. I'm glad he's feeling better. I do want to point out that while he's... I forgot to put this in Helicopter and Longworth, but keeping track of random Discworld years, we have Year of the Amending can- Camel and Year of the Translated Rat. Oh, I missed that. Must have skimmed wherever we they're, were there. They're wine years when he's drunk in the cellar. Yeah, okay. Um, but his outcome and Sekiro's going, oh, you're going to lock him away, you know, man in the Iron Mask oh. style. I don't think she actually referenced Man in the Iron Mask because I don't think Alexandra Dumas exists on the disc. But No, that seems but, unlikely. But it was implied. I feel it was implied. He'll be in Quirm somewhere anyway. So Yes. Um, but yes, no, he's enrolled in the Guild of Actors um, <laughs> doing children's parties thing, which I like the veterinarian says, yes, very risible. That's a word that should be used more. Risible. I love risible. it. And... Also, smart on Vetinara's part, because although obviously he'd never admit it, useful to have a double. And he's on a guild books now. He's not yeah. going to disappear without trace. What, you're going to scrag him? No, obviously not. That would be weird and getting rid of a useful resource. But having him on the books of a guild means yeah. you know where he is. Also, everyone in the city now knows there's a Vetinari lookalike running around, which means mm-hmm. like if Vetinari does something weird and out of character that could be grounds to get rid of him as patrician, they can go, hang on a sec, are you Charlie? Are you doing like a, a bit? Ooh, ooh, that's that comes up with all kinds of potential ethical things, though, doesn't it? What if Pratchett? What not Pratchett? What if Fetnari's like, no, that, that wasn't me who threw your father into the scorpion pit. Sure. <laughs> that was, that, that was another ju- very similar scorpion pit held by my. <laughs> Fetnari would just admit to throwing. Yeah, no, Fetnari wouldn't lie about throwing someone in a scorpion pit. That's fair. That's fair. Um, and then Sakarissa, who gets some fucking great moments in this. Ooh. For a slight note before we get the great moments, though, is that uh, Pratchett pointed out in, again, one of the forum posts, I spent so much time on that this morning. Um, oh, no, the forum posts are such a great resource. I know. It's just, I get so into it that I just lose track of time. But yeah, it is a real name, Sakarissa, quite ah. old. He came across it in a history book as the name of an 18th century lady. And it is oh, indeed lovely. saccharine, like so, so. Yes, the 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 lovely listener who I think that was Genevieve. That was Thank correct. you, Genevieve. That's right. yeah. Um, 
But yeah, she gets good moments. Who who? Mopox. Sorry. When they uh, <laughs> when they realise they're breaking into the inquirer cellars, and she's like, oh, "You're not going to kill anyone. Make them a bit sorry." She's got this sort of about <laughs> yeah. to burst out disrespectability. We've all known someone like that, which makes it even funnier. Like, yeah. You've been with the girl who's going to her first house party and now you're like, please do not set fire to the hedge. <laughs> off the table, off the yeah. table, get down. <laughs> no, don't go out with him. <laughs> We've definitely all been there. And when she finally starts um, threatening Carney and he's sort of trying to, doing the patronising, mollifying her and she starts doing, she's, says you used to chase me chase me i used to hit you over the head with a wooden cow ah here we go threatening it was a lovely cow and i broke its leg <laughs> yes well she's threatening him and she's got this sort of um it was a lovely cow and one day i hit you so hard one of its legs broke off reminds All me pointing <laughs> reminds me of, uh, of becky when we met uh the, the very first time we met she accidentally tricked me off and then got cross with me We've been we've been friends for twenty years, <laughs> so that's that's how to do it. That is how you do it. Um, but yes, I love her. I'm glad she gets to have those moments in this. Yes, um, I do feel a bit bad for her when she's getting kidnapped and she's like, "I'm, I'm going to write things down at you," and she's not quite learnt William's method of intimidating people with a notepad yet. Yeah, also you have it would to just be never quiet. have worked on pin and tulip. You're neutral. Yeah, no, for sure. It's. A, she hasn't quite got the hang of it. B, what an audience. <laughs> That's not who you want to go for on your first try. No. Oh, she's great, though. She is really just a... a she's easily, do words, equal and brings, like, the alternate perspective of the more working class without, like, it, it's not hammed up that, oh, I'm so destitute and you're so rich or whatever. It's just like a... Yeah. Yeah, no, most people don't have entire suites of wardrobes just... FYI, yeah. mate. Yeah. <laughs> you massive fucking posho. Most people don't have $40 for a dress, let alone whatever these cost. Mm. I want a sparkly blue dress. <laughs> I want a sparkly blue dress. I want it. I, I hope she did get to wear it and go to the ball at some point, though. Did she have it? I don't. <laughs> I feel like that she could have probably gone back for it at <laughs> yeah, some okay, point yeah, yeah, after sure. the fire. Yeah, we never heard about the ball. Oh. <laughs> I hope she had a lovely time. Well, she. I bet they went to the wedding. Oh, well, they would have gone to the wedding yeah. and worn their best. <laughs> anyway, sorry. sorry. Um, also, uh, my favourite also moment is like a page after Sakharissa threatening Mr. Carney, which is when, um, oh yeah, they're, they're threatening the other workers of the Enquirer and he's saying, um, everyone who goes home early get because of a headache gets some money. And they say, well, what if we don't go? And also does the vel, that's when you get a headache. And there's a flash of lightning and a roll yeah. of thunder. And he's like, yes, it's doing it. Finally, getting on let's, board. Let's try once more. Castle. The thunder rolled again. Now we're really cooking. Once more with feeling. What a big castle. <laughs> Dramatic thunder sounds. Oh, it is beautiful. Uh, he does. Otto, Otto's great, isn't he? Because he's this kind of comic side character, but also he's then so important. Then suddenly gets a really intense yeah. bit right at the end. Yeah. I love it. Also, quickly before we get onto his oh, really sure, intense sorry. bit, though, when he goes in and starts threatening to fight them in the traditional Ankh-Morpork fashion, has also read the Marquis of Fantea because yes. I feel like he has. He definitely has, or is he at least familiar with the rules. He, he's. I feel like he's definitely familiar with the rules of the Marquis de Bloody Fantea. 
but uh, he he will never have a gravestone on which to put them. <laughs> Absolutely not. But yeah, when he's threatening Lord De Word, and he's called an it, and he's like, mm. "Oh, you're gonna call me an it, are you? Uh, you're here as well. It then. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Are you gonna? You're gonna? Do you want me to act like you're treating me? Pardon? It's a do you want me to act like you're treating me kind of thing. Yes, very, very much so. And it's just William trying to call you back and it's sort of the, uh, okay, maybe I won't do it because William thinks I'm a good person. Am I better than you? And then he kisses him on the forehead and just, I love it. (laughs) (sighs) And the line that eases the tension is, well, maybe Zakoko's not too bad and there's a young lady who plays the harmonium. Sometimes she vinks at me. Mm-hmm. But also, I felt like we just need to shout out also for being really fucking horny for a lot of this because I've, it's iconic. For and sure, I respect yeah, it. yeah. He's not like this. He, he hasn't lost all his other urges. No, so he hasn't lost any of the urges. But yes, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, there he is. There he is. We have people like you back home. He said. They are the ones that tell the mob what to do. I come here to Ankh Morpork. They tell me things are different, but really it is always the same. Always there are damn people like you. And now what shall I do with you? Wow, my accent went on a full European tour there. I do apologise. But yes. That was that was wild. Thank you. Uh but yeah, just the always always says you here. Yep. Am I gonna kill it? No, no. Alright, fine. The harmonium the harmonium. <laughs> Young lady who plays the harmonium. And then later on, when there's blood again, and it, it's it's okay, he's fine with it that time. But you still yeah. get the moment of the dwarves who had to be kind of chivied into helping last time, just straight away going, "Oh, come on, fellas, let's sing the song." Yeah, <laughs> it's just they've sort of added it to their like health and safety protocol now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my god, yeah. Let's add that to the to the documentation. Uh- <laughs> yeah, in case of vampire emergency, break out, we all walk in sunshine. We've got the fire marshal, we've got the vampire marshal. Uh, cool. And then we're moving onwards and downwards to about to knee height. Gaspode slash Trixie Bell slash Deepbone. The, the, the dog of many names. The dog of many names. I just think it's very sweet when you see his little panic moment. Where, wait, they're taking terriers. T- terriers. Oh, what about people that just look a bit terrier-like? Look a bit terrier-like? <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah this decision that he needs a surprise and this sort of description of Trixie Bell as pinkness the effect was not of a poodle but of malformed poodlosity that is to say everything about it suggested poodle except for the whole thing itself which suggested <laughs> walking away like the opposite of what Pratchett usually talks about which is like it's the essence of thing even if it doesn't look like it this is the- like, no. <laughs> this is entirely the aesthetic of the thing but put on something that it's just not the thing no it's not the thing but it's well, not the well thing done thing. well done Trixie Bell good disguises excellent disguises and well done Waffles well done Waffles I love this idea of uh, there were two gods in the room Waffles being an old fashioned dog you see <laughs> I'm getting very, very into his memory of the event. Enough to bite William. And then William very calmly, after Pin dies, just measuring the bite marks on his leg versus the ones on Pin's leg. He's very diligent. Yeah, no. Diligent Good measurements. Good that's thinking. A sign of a, that's a sign of a journo, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, the amount of times I've had to measure dog bites. <laughs> <laughs> diligent measurements is my uh, really dull stripper name. 
Good. Tell, uh, speaking of diligence, I'll tell you who's not into that. Dibbler. Dibbler. Not very diligent. Dibbler, that's what they call it. What's his first name? I got the fucking mid- middle name thing wrong cut, there. Cut me own th- his first name's cut me own throat. Yeah, that's so I right. Like yes, yeah. a- Fuck it. No, carry on. Yeah, Dibbler. He, he, cut, cut he, me own he is involved. He is involved. Was right. <laughs> Writing his tabloid sausages. Nice. I just do, I like the comparison because once you think about it for a second, yes, absolutely. A, a Sunday sports style news story is a bad hot dog. Yes. Ooh, what foods are various publications? The Guardian. Quinoa. Oh, quinoa. no, quinoa's a bit passe now. No, wait. But so, it's the Guardian. <laughs> so, quinoa, but from a pret in like a. Oh, yeah, like a pret, like yeah. sad quinoa yeah, yeah. box yeah, yeah. eaten in mm. a cubicle. Yeah. Uh, Telegraph is going to be a bacon salmon sandwich. Mousse. Oh, okay. I was going to go with like artisanal bacon sandwich. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Like we're we're not posh, but but posh. Oh, the Telegraph is posh. Well, yeah. Um, all right. I, I could probably transfer salmon mousse to, mousse to the Times. Actually, so that's fine. Yeah, the, I think the Times can do a salmon mousse vibe. Mm-hmm. Daily Mail is curry that has raisins in it. Yeah, Daily and Mail talks is about Mrs. Arcanum's yeah. curry. <laughs> <laughs> like a Tesco's microwavable chicken tikka masala. Uh, Private Eye is something really good, just in case anyone who writes for it ever listens to this. I'm sucking up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Private Eye is oh, really good chips in a newspaper. Yes. Yeah, there we go. Private Eye is very much that. Yeah. Um, um, right. the, spect- the Spectator's roast swan. Oh, good. Yeah, nice. Okay, right. This is off topic. Um, I do like <laughs> the devil you say. <laughs> Dibbler's career shift into ad sales because he can oh, yeah. sell nothing, like nobody's yeah. business. Nothing, nothing. I can sell, I can sell nothing. It's when I sell anything. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. Let me sell nothing. <laughs> lastly, uh, I wanted to point out one of the Vesinari things, which is obviously the votes around Scrope being elected. What a fucking word. So- <laughs> Scrope. Scroop. Put that with Scroot. Uh, and the ones who adjourned, the beggars, seamstresses, launderers, and Guild of Exotic Dancers. So Queen Molly, Mrs. Palm, Mrs. Manger, and Miss Dixie Voom. But then just in life, Lord Veterinary must have led. That is a fun one because, well, A, it's a nice little joke, but B, it's like, that is interesting that the traditionally downtrodden sectors of society very into Veterinary, who's clearly... Well, this is the thing. On the surface, it's a bit of a pervy joke. Haha, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's the seamstresses and the exotic dancers who yeah. you don't want to get rid of. But no, it's just like you have Vesinari who has generally probably made the lot better for those people. Like, I feel like he's probably engendered some equality as opposed to someone like Scrope who. For sure. If Lord Rust was in charge, he'd have never allowed there to be a guild of seamstresses. Exactly. Or exotic dancers, or launderers. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see a lot of the, the Lord Russ, the Lord DeWords, don't want a guild of beggars because yeah. um, it's the streets look untidy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Let us outlaw homelessness. But not give we're... homeless people homes. Yeah. <laughs> we're not going to house the unhoused, but no. you can't be unhoused. Yeah. Yes, you are You are criminal for existing. Oh, yes. fun. Social commentary. Let's move on. I'm adding Vimes to the end here. Mr. Yep. Vimes liked to refer to himself as a simple copper, just as Harry King thought of himself as a rough diamond. William suspected that the world was littered with the remains of those people who had taken them at their word. <laughs> it's kind of veterinary because veterinary likes to 
say things that you'd probably better not take literally. <laughs> yes. Little bits we liked. Little bits we like and won't cause us to cry. In theory, where are we? Mm-hmm. Uh, the gone again. The gone again. Come and gone again. Okay, so the gone, the gone has popped back up. Uh, third book the is little now. spring pistol crossbow yeah. thing. Yes. Not technically a gone. Well, it said a spring gone. It's a sp- Oh, yeah. It, it is a gone, and I'm confirming that in the last one it was a gone as well. I'm winning this argument. Um, no, that's fair. <laughs> okay, it's not a gone in that it doesn't use explosives. It's not a firework stick. No, did the last one? The first one. The one that was the gone that uh, Leonard de Quirm designed and that was the whole plot of Men at Arms. Did it have gunpowder in it? Yes, because um, one of the gargoyles refers to it as a firework stick. Oh, yeah. And okay, no, you smell win. of gunpowder. You win the argument. This is a new modified gone. Yes. Yes. No, in my head, because it was fireworks, because they were talking about the smell of fireworks, I was thinking because of the dragon. No, you're quite right. Anyway. Dragon was a different book. It was technically and legally a crossbow in that human strength compressed the string. Spring. Uh, but any, uh, all of this stuff. Anyone caught with one by the Assassin's Guild would find its ability to be hidden on the human body tested to the extreme. I like the idea that now we have the technology... It's not going to disappear entirely. That's kind of realistic version of events. Yeah. But it steps is. Steps will be, be taken against it. Steps will be taken against it. It's being very repressed by the Assassin's Guild. And I imagine Vetnari standing behind them going, this is not going to be a commonplace item. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it was a member of the Assassin's Guild who had one in the yeah. last book. Yeah, for sure. But like Vetnari's special, special little assassin boy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So he was allowed one. Maybe he keeps keeps a couple for his special occasions. Spe- his special assassins. Yes. yes. Special occasions, gosh. Ah. Anyway, I just like the kind of yeah, realistic there's this kind of thing's never going to disappear now. It's popped up. It wasn't one of yeah. the magic cinema appearances, whatever. But um yeah. but they are doing a decent job of repressing it, as I think would happen. So yes, that's a nice detail. Mm-hmm. Values and traditions, Joanna. This isn't a bit I liked, but this is a quick bit I wanted to point up, uh, which is when Vimes is sort of checking in on who's Mr. Scrope and what's he going to be saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that he's looking forward to a new era in our history. He'll put Ank Morport back on the path of responsible citizenship. He wants to return to the values and traditions that make the city great, sir. And it's such a gross political re- rhetoric we've all heard. Yeah. Um, it was kind of following on from the point about Vetinari and the guilds that chose to abstain. They're the guilds that may not fit in with values and traditions, despite what Mr. Scrope makes and sells. Yeah. Which are leather accoutrement. But I do like Vimes immediately mm. calling out with, does he know what those values and traditions are? Yeah. <laughs> this is Ankh Morpork. Our national anthem is we can only, we own you wholesale. Yeah, we. <laughs> and again, like, what are, what are British values? Uh... <laughs> Name, go on, name one that you'd be happy to see in a headline. <laughs> Chips. Yeah, I don't mean you particularly. I mean the politicians. No. Like, go on. I know what you're hinting at, but say it. Say it out loud. <laughs> go on. Go on. Say the quiet part loud. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, would you like to put any of this in a letter to the editor, Francine? Absolutely, always. Bearing in mind that you were the editor. <laughs> why? Oh, why? Oh, why? <laughs> yeah. The the bit about. Mrs. Tilly, uh, Mrs. Tilly, I think you wrote a lovely, well-spelled and grammatical letter to us suggesting that everyone under the age of 18 should be flogged once a week to stop them being so noisy. Yeah. Uh, I love the unhinged letters to the editor in general. I think yeah. that's great. 
I think I've talked before about green ink and the whole, the, you know, the special brand of madness that comes to people who regularly write to newspapers. I've got a little book called Am I Alone in Thinking, which is unpublished letters to the Daily Telegraph. Oh, amazing. And I, I, I found a very similar one to the one parodied in here, which I thought I'd read for us. Sir, if the government was serious about ending knife crime, it could do so in a week. All that would be necessary would be for anyone found with a knife without proper excuse to receive 10 lashes with a cat of nine tails. Fear is what prevents offences. Liberal do-gooders have got us into this mess we are now in, and that has got to stop. Yes, flogging. Flogging. Uh, good book, very funny. So, speaking of things that are horrific. Yes, no, there's some good horror moments in this book. And more than that, this last third particularly has a couple of really good horror moments. But what's so good about them is that it's not a whiplashy tonal shift. Mm-hmm. It's a very good horror moment as the story keeps going. Like in a in a the hands of a lesser author, it'd be like, oh God, what the fuck was that? Yeah. Why are we back <laughs> here now? But Pratchett puts them in so well that it just it works for me. Mm-hmm. You have we we've already talked a bit about Pin killing Tulip and that, but the actual moment of it of this this I've got a plan and it's for the good of the firm, and then shooting him in the head. Mm. Like it's dark, it's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, for more horror horror, um, Pin coming out of the cellar. Yes. Uh smoke poured off him and he was screaming one long, incoherent scream. It was imminent pain that occupied all of his future. The face of the creature was inches away, eyes wide, and staring through him at something horrible, but his hands were tied around William's neck. That is the horror movie moment of The villain's not dead after all. Fuck. Yes. And the very last ominous press moment that's a fun, like, almost could be a bit of set up for something later on as well, if, mm. if it wanted to go that way, that we've been reassured through this whole book that this isn't a music with rocks in. This isn't anything like Mr. Hong and the Three Jolly Luck Takeaway Fish Bar. It's all very normal. And then William kind of looking at the press and this, it looked back at him. And he thought, you don't need old sacrificial stones you put your mark on me, I'm on to you. And then he's like, right, we've got to get out of here now. Got to go. Uh, as you say, it leaves the door open, but I don't think Pratchett ever intended to go through it. it was a, it's very much a, this is what the press does to you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I don't think it was It was a doing this in case you did another book, but it's nice to leave on that kind of slightly ominous note about mm. it. Pratchett apparently had to insist that Mr. Tulip died. The editor oh, yeah, pleaded you, um... for the life of Mr. Tulip. She really wants him back in another book. This was part of a longer rant about him once again being very pissed off that people keep saying Pin and Tulip are nicked from Neil Gaiman and Creep and Vandermar. Yes. Which I just want to read one paragraph. The fact that some in-character reminds someone of another in-character is not, I suggest, an uh, in-annotation unless there are some very severe similarities. A pair of heavies, one mostly the brains, the other mostly the muscle, is so generic that it's a cliche. Of course I'm not going to pinch from Gaiman, but I might share the same sources. <laughs> Yeah. I love angry, angry friendship yeah. runs. And actually in the same bit, um, I'm not sure where else I'd put this, but it's kind of in our general long-term discussion about Pratchett and tropes and genres and things. He's saying that newspaper stories and crime stories are genres in themselves. Uh, a lot of things in them remind people of other books, movies, whatever, in the same genre. That's why it's a genre. But yes, the first bit is the thing is, that, yeah, newspaper stories and crime stories are their own genre. Horror yeah. comes from crime stories. I guess. It does. Uh, and I, oh gosh, wouldn't you love to see his take on true crime podcasts? Yes. Oh, dearie me. 
Oh yeah, the vindictive geography moment, on the other hand, just made me laugh. Mm. Um, gods, the mayor of Querm's been struck by a meteorite again. Apparently, can that happen? It's from a sensible chap. It says this time it was waiting for the mayor in an alley. <laughs> we know someone who's got a son who's the lecturer in vindictive astronomy, astronomy at the university. <laughs> Which I love this moment, A, because it's ridiculous that the meteorite was waiting for the mayor in an alley, but also because it reads like an Inquirer story and it's not. It's taken very seriously by the twi- yeah. Times. And it's a nice reminder in a book that's one of the least fantastical, I'd say, of the Discworld yeah. books. Um, all right, yes, there's a vampire and a talking dog, but for Discworld, comparatively... <laughs> Fine, Bursar, whatever. Background noise. So, yeah. So you have all these ridiculous, couldn't be true inquirer stories, but then you have this quite obviously very factual. Yeah, no, of course he got hit by a meteorite and it was waiting for him in alley. And yeah, no, we know the professor of vindictive geography because yeah. that's something that the Discworld does have. Yeah, of course. Because there's enough of it. And I just really like that as a moment of reminding us yeah. no, we're still on the disc. It's all still You said a bit astronomy silly, wants worry. some geography once. Which do you mean? No, I mean astronomy. I don't know why I've written geography. I okay. can't be trusted. No, that's fine. I mean, it's it's now on the ground, and it would be geology, not geography, I suppose. But it's, yeah. you're going to get mixed up with the professor professor of cruel and egregious geography. Got it. There we go. Well, there then. we go. Sorry. Well, listeners. luckily that paid off. Much like a lot of things in this book. Yeah. <laughs> we get this is lesser payoff than just a callback of um, uh, High Priest Rig Cully telling everyone he thinks for Lord Veterinary went mad because the but the day before he'd been telling him about a plan to make lobsters fly through the air. Uh-huh, that sounds right. <laughs> Which I enjoy being called back to. Um, you get, obviously, the big dramatic moment of William buying himself back off his father and throwing mm-hmm. the jewels at his feet. Mm-hmm. Which is nice, because that didn't feel like a heavily signposted setup. That was a good conversation and a nice bit of world-building about dwarf culture. And then William gets to ha- go and have that moment. Mm-hmm. And of course, we get the big payoff of the headline, Dog Bites Man. Oh, it's brilliant, isn't it? It's alluded to all throughout. It's a very extended uh, writing device. <laughs> That's a yes. Ha. Ha. Now it's news. Now it's news. Ha. And in fact, that's nice, isn't it? Because if you've got a story like that, that's what you want to go with. You want to go with the something so obvious that people look at it and go, wait, why is that news? Yeah. And that's when they pick it up mm. and read it and go, yeah. ah! All right, let's talk about the bigger stuff. Yeah. The free press. Slightly morally grubby. Oh, it is a bit grubby. Well, this kind of jumps back onto the conversation we were having earlier about the Vimes and William comparisons and William not needing to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And it, I think it's interesting to compare William to Vimes because it's it makes sense to in the context of this book because in another world, this could be a watchbook. Yeah. This is sitting next to a watchbook which makes the line later on where you know vines is saying to william well, look we're on the same side and william's like well no we're not we're on sides that are next to each other yeah i like it when william's writing things down in the, the meeting about mr scrope having called in sick and um, <laughs> well, oh, down yeah. he's saying well he can't just write down anything can he and vines looked william in the eye and said there's no law against it which is very the enemy of my enemy is my friend, I think, because suddenly, yeah. suddenly Vimes' tone changed as soon as Lord Downey was uh, involved. <laughs> Which is fair, because I feel like everyone just wants to kind of oh, fuck yeah. Lord Downey off a bit. Yeah, But you have really early on with Karen and Angra being very reasonable after Angra's been hit by the oil of Scalatine. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'm going to ban him from doing this. It's like, well, you can't. I was yeah. like, well, I mean, you could stop him from writing things down, but I don't think you can stop him from writing down that you've stopped him from writing things down. Yes. And the kind of call out that 
you know, Vimes actually gets a couple of call outs for immoral practices here. Yeah. Um, having somebody followed uh, illicitly and and, and so bring up the fucking forum again. Sorry. In fact, in one of the related threads, I saw Pratchett point out something we've talked about before, which is there mm. are loads of bad policing practices in the watch. And he yeah. said uh, he alluded to specifically uh, detritus's slab raid where he like yep. pins someone off against the wall. And one of the commenters said, oh, no, you know, uh, drug drug police should be more like that um pratchett said well you know you might think that if you're reading it from the point of detritus but what if you were the innocent troll who had his ears nailed to the wall yeah and i was like ha ah, ha ah, you get it <laughs> yeah i'm glad pratchett knows he's doing it and i'm glad vimes gets called out here especially when it's mm. in the case of william being followed and vimes is trying to say yeah. you assaulted an officer it's like oh did i did i was it an officer that was known yeah, to me yeah 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 <laughs> why was there an officer there <laughs> I was just throwing gross stuff around. Is there yeah, a law against Okay, may, there might be a law against that, but not a serious one. <laughs> and the moment when he's actually writing up the story, he's worked everything that happened, but before he's gone to confront his father, and Sakharis is saying, are you sure it's all true? And he says, well, I'm sure it's all journalism. Mm. <laughs> and, and for someone who is very, very close to the truth to have that kind of grey area in journalism of is it true or is it not, and this is a question this book points up, and I'm, this is not a criticism of the book or of William. It's, a, it's why I think the book is so good, is that in becoming the guy who invents the paper all in about three days as opposed to a few centuries, he becomes this arbitrator of truth versus journalism. Yes. And it's sort of a, what gives you the right? And it goes back into his arrogance. It's like, well, I can do this and I'm the best person for it because I know it when I see it. And and it just it doesn't work if you mm. dig down into it for more than a few seconds. For sure, for sure. Um he he's yeah. He's he doesn't have the the editorial office behind him is the thing as well, isn't it? Like no. nowadays you try and do a huge expose on a politician or a scandal, whatever, you've got the lawyer. Um yes. and turns out William does have a lawyer, luckily. But kind of not before the fact. Generally you get a lawyer to look at it before you publish that. But yeah. how quickly can you make that happen if it's such a time-sensitive scandal? I actually don't know how how a newspaper room would work with something that high profile with that tighter time limit. I wonder how that would go. Well, especially as at the moment, we don't have libel laws in Inkmore Book. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. you've just um, got the uh, the knowledge that somebody won't like it and that somebody probably has a big stick. Which is a conversation that's happened a lot about like press trials and things and things that get published in the UK and don't. And people have to often explain like the UK has much more stringent libel mm -hmm. laws than most of the US. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's what makes it such a good book. And I think one of the things that works with v William when you compare him to Vimes, because Vimes is not a perfect character. Vimes is very morally grey. But as Slump pointed out in the last section, he knows that and he keeps a very tight leash on himself. William hasn't learned that self-awareness yet. He's keeping a leash on himself to try not to be like his father. Mm. He hasn't learned to keep the leash on himself to not to be like himself, which might be something yeah. he needs to do occasionally. That's true. He's still becoming himself. He's, yeah. He's learning his own Vimes elbow. He is. And, then, and you get towards the end of the book and you still have this arrogance that makes sense, which is when he's talking to Vetinari. Uh, about this idea of the free press yeah and it's like oh you should be free to print what you like because it's in the public interest yes you have stories people are interested in and human interest which is what humans are interested in and public interest which no one is interested in except the public which isn't the same as people and humans and the public thinks big sensible measured thoughts while people run around doing silly things yes <laughs> which is a nice 
thing to have pointed out. I don't think there's a big answer to, oh, no, the public is this and the human is that. But I think it's nice to have it called out that there's a difference and there's some arrogance sometimes in how things are published. Yeah. Following from that, I thought a particularly good point from Vetinari. It amazes me how the news you have so neatly fits the space available. And every day something happens that's important enough to be at the top of the first page. How strange. Which is very... Yeah, no, it's uh, if you're going to print a newspaper every day and nothing happens, you need to be sensationalist. That's going to happen. You're going to have to elevate something. And from that, you are going to not just observe what's going on, but be biased because you are picking what to make important. It's and I love the whole like cutting things down to fit the page, whatever. It's like, oh, amazingly, yes, as you are just being an unbiased reporter, it just so happens that it all fits into your format. But yeah, isn't that nice? Yes, how helpful. I also kind of want to put a bit of a pin in Vetinari and his keeping an eye on William DeWord, especially Vetinari taking an interest in a new public surface run by a potentially morally grubby character mm-hmm. because this feels like a a bit of a first draft for some, for some later books that we'll get. Yes. I feel yes. like a, a, a bit of a character template starting here that will get used again but expanded upon. Yeah. I don't know about character template, but yeah, we'll talk about Definitely, that more later. <laughs> yeah. Definitely not identical, but I think it's worth ha- worth having the pin in it here. Yeah, I think there's sure. some fun comparisons to draw later. And you want to talk about the role of the observer in all of this as well. Yeah, so the last the last kind of bit of journalism you see that there's a cart crash and William watches and it's described in detail to us the lead up to the cart crash and the old woman and her canes and the the cart careering along and then Captain Carrot jumps out of nowhere and saves her and William realises that instead of going to help what he's done is pulled out his notebook Yes, and that's got a whole set of discussions when it comes to journalism and documentary making especially Yeah, there's always controversy when a documentary maker does anything or when they don't do anything and then I thought it, it also pastes nicely onto a world that Pratchett didn't live to see which is the well, kind of did, but not to the extent it is now, which is why are you filming that on your phone instead of helping? Or yeah. you get the same discussion under every one of those videos, which is somebody needs to observe, somebody needs to report, except it's all of us now, except instead of a designated reporter. observer. Yes. Yeah, the role of the observer versus the health helper versus the... yeah observed slash needing to be helped all those mm-hmm. lines are blurred a lot more as like social media has become a bigger thing and we are all kind of our own reporters yeah yeah that's a good way yeah and most of us aren't taught about journalistic ethics and aren't well, bound by the rules of our newspaper or by this jumps on what we were talking about last week as much as there's this kind of issue with a lack of media literacy there's a lack of understanding what power you might have because even if it's just tweeting about something or sharing a video, you're engaging in this media machine. Mm. And of course you're going to be biased every single fucking, there is no unbiased person. It's impossible to be totally unbiased. And a lot of those biases can be unconscious. Yeah, for sure. And often things are shared and reported on with an agenda, both in newspapers and just by people sharing things on social media. Yeah. Um, But I feel like there's, along with a lack of media literacy, there's a lack of responsibility and no one learns to have a sense of responsibility mm. about what they're sharing and how they're talking about it. Yeah. And actually, we're doing this slightly wrong order to rewind slightly 
which is the ever-expanding role of the observer, what Pratchett did live to see was the easily available platform of the internet for for news yeah. news sites for like newspaper websites and articles being available online yeah for bloggers for whatever the gatekeepers suddenly disappeared and for some reasons that's a good thing but for many reasons it's a bad thing and you know yeah. there's this huge huge debate to be had about the value of having gatekeepers for media and i think it's perhaps becoming a little more obvious that the value is there than it was 10 years ago yeah but of course, then who who hires the gatekeepers? Who watches the watch? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the press should be free, but people should maybe think about how it's getting out there. Yeah, Pratchett also had a bit to say, not in this book particularly, but about how the observer changes what's going on by the mere point of observing it. So it's a bit quantum again. Uh, yes, but not quite. Things change by being observed. Yeah. A quote from Pratchett in an interview, I think, was that uh, my journalistic career unfolded with a certain routine. Of course, there was always a court somewhere that needed the presence of journalists. Actually, they didn't. Justice was dispensed, more or less satisfactorily, whether we were there or not. Nevertheless, justice has to be seen to be done. And therefore, our stalwart from the Bucks Free Press had to sit there in his jeep jacket and write it all down in impeccable Pittman's shorthand. Which is the, yeah, which, oh, fuck, we're going to get messy here. It is the observer being observed to observe, um, <laughs> which is important. We need to see that somebody is watching. Yes. Um, even if we're not interested in the the court uh, appearances of that day, it is comforting and correct to know that an independent observer was there, should we? Should to we hold them to, to account. To hold power to account, I think it's a phrase we haven't said yet, but is obviously yes. the one that gets repeated ad nauseum. Uh, uh, when one is talking about the value of the press <laughs> and speak truth to power which speak I speak truth a, to power yeah god i hate that saying i know <laughs> i'm so glad you hate it too. <laughs> i know it's very well meant and i know like amnesty international use it in a very specific way and they're doing a lot of good work yeah no for sure yeah it's i'm not really i'm cringe. not going to criticize good people who are using it but yeah it is such a cliche yeah george chopley which was the chief reporter in pratchett's first job yeah was apparently, according to Mark Burroughs, uh, the person from whom he learned how to use the truth, how to be right in a way that went beyond simply being correct, which which doesn't summarise exactly, but hints at the nebulous stuff we were talking about. About Is it exactly. true? Is it your version of the truth? Is there a truth? Yes. Truth is beauty. Beauty, truth, sir. And we haven't even talked about our whole rant subject that we really can't get into. We do not have the time about how, you know, the whole, oh, facts over feelings crowd who don't really oh, understand what off. a fact is, what objectivism is, what subjectivism is, what emotions are, etc., etc. Actually, uh, I which, think you've got most of the rant in there. It kind of only works. You already know what I'm on about, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Pratchett on journalism because he, he was a journalist for a very long time. Well, oh, actually, no, I suppose it, he was a journalist for a bit and then he, he was a yeah. press officer, wasn't he? Yeah, and he was a sub-editor. He worked in the, the area for a very long time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, very briefly, going over his reporting career and leaning heavily on Mark Burroughs' magic of Terry Pratchett here. Uh, so, Pratchett worked at the Bucks Free Press. That was his first job in mm -hmm. 1965. He got the job as a trainee reporter. He he brought his own typewriter that he'd bought two years ago. Otherwise, he'd have had to pay one off in installments. Apparently, that was the thing. Um, I know. This is maybe apocryphal, may not be. 
but Pratchett said, Arthur Church, who was the editor who mentored many a journalist, uh, Pratchett said, I think he actually said to me, I like the cut of your jib, which was probably the last time anyone ever said it. I've said that many a time. I yeah. fucking love that phrase. Uh, but he, he stayed at the Bucks Free for five years in various roles. He worked in his spare time there to earn the NCTJ qualification. It's like professional journalistic qualification in the UK. He claimed mm. to have gotten the best job grade in the country. Yeah. Um, <laughs> One little detail from that uh, passage that I can make a direct parallel to this book and pretend we're still on track here. Uh, he found himself writing up flower shows, parish council decisions, a new Rotary Club chairman. Right near the end there, we've got Sakarissa wielding her pencil with care, crossed out every adjective in a report of the Antmorpor Floral Arranging Society, reducing its length by half. <laughs> and you can just imagine Pratchett's little memory going there, his little yeah. red pen or pencil. <laughs> During that period, actually, side note, he met Peter Bander when he was asked to interview him, and that's Colin Smythe's business partner. Uh, right. So they're, they're eventual first publishers. So we met his his break Pratchett. into the authorial world through his first journalism job. Cool, cool. In 1970, he left for the Western Daily Press, which is in Bristol, uh, mm. and he was sacked in 1971. <laughs> and that was his last job as a reporter. But he then yeah. returned to the Buxbury Press as a sub-editor, uh, which he has said many a time was a very important thing to do if you're going to be a writer or a copy editor or anything, learning how to cut everything down by half. And I fully agree with him here and did even before I knew all of this, that Pratchett thought, I'm not just nicking my opinions off him, I promise. It is so important. You are a very, very good sub-editor. Unfortunately, not of the spoken word, as you can tell. But... <laughs> <laughs> But no, you have a level of ruthlessness that I cannot manage. I'm not an amazing No, you're editor. a creative, my darling. I, <laughs> I write nonfiction and I edit nonfiction. I, I would probably be a horrendous fiction editor because I would upset every author. It's yeah. hard enough not to upset a columnist, which straddles <laughs> the line somewhat between fiction and nonfiction. No offence, columnist. So yeah. much offence, columnist. <laughs> so much. Then he went on to be a press officer, et cetera, et cetera. I think we talked about the rest. Um, his feelings on it. Yeah, kind of his opinions on journalism are very interesting. There's lots of, we're going to skim again here. This may be one day a rabbit hole or a bonus episode, actually. This will be a fun one. But one of my sources, actually, before I begin, was the Bucks Free Press in writing in 2006, I think, possibly, maybe a bit later. And I'd yeah. like to point out at this point that they spelt his name wrong in a caption. <laughs> <laughs> Terry Pratchett with one T, who worked for the Bucks Free Press. And uh, they also put a space in Discworld in the main article. Disc skip Discworld. So uh, they clearly need to hire some sub-editors back. Side rant. Sub-editors, some of the first editorial staff to go in the inevitable decline of the proper press. And it really fucking shows throughout the BBC even. Like, oof. I think Pratchett as ex-journalist is nicely grumpy, I thought. He's clearly got very mixed feelings about the press. When interviewed by journalists, he was very critical of them. Uh, Mark Burry is one of his footnotes here. Though still a required part of most journalism qualifications, the use of shorthand has declined. When he became famous enough to be interviewed himself, Pratchett would often accuse journalists, using some device to record their chat, of cheating before asking them questions about legal and ethical practices in journalism in an attempt to catch them out. <laughs> what, what a fuck? dick. <laughs> what an absolute dick. I love it. But yeah, he, he also talked uh, a lot about the responsibility that came up as soon as he was the one reporting on the truth, deciding what the truth was. Yeah. He said, it, it worried me that in the nature of journalism, you had to chop the world up into little lumps of 150 words. You could never tell the whole story. I was never very good at doorstep 
asking, how do you feel, Mrs. Jones, when your son was knifed by the Hells Angels? Because on the whole, you had a pretty good idea how they felt. But we had to ask the dumb questions often when neither you nor the person wanted to talk about it. But then he clearly values the experience that journalism brought him and thinks it'd be valuable for other people. I think he said somewhere that uh, journalism makes you think fast. Yeah. Um, which he demonstrates with William DeWord here, I think, who's rattling off the top of his head an article, which is something I hugely admire. I've never been able to do. My old boss used to be able to do that with like a 2000 word article on legal matters. Just being able to write, talk an article off the top of your head. What a talent. Yeah. But yeah, here's a message from 1992 on the forum uh, about journalism and the effects thereof. Yes, Dave Gemmell and Neil Gaiman were both journalists. So was Bob Shaw. So was I. It's good training because any tendency to writer's block is burned out of you within a few weeks of starting work by unsympathetic news editors. You very quickly learn the direct link between writing and editing. Uh, between writing and eating, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you pick up a style of sorts, you get to hang around in interesting places, you learn, learn to take editing in your stride and tend to be reliable about deadlines. You end up with an ability to think at the keyboard and reduce the world to yourself and the work at hand. You have to do this to survive in a world of ringing telephones and shouting sub-editors. None of this makes you talented or good, but it does help you make the best of what you've got. That's a really good quote. I love that. Yeah. Quite a lot of good authors were journalists and here's why, mm -hmm. which is cool. Finally, a demonstration of how Pratchett felt about journalists, certainly later on, uh, but is also a fun tangent. Can you guess what I'm going to talk about? Quite possibly. It's the Rowling feud. Oh, the Rowling uh, feud. The Rowling feud, but in, in scare quotes. So I'm one day going to write this up for our hobby drama, like yeah. in depth, because there's so much. Yeah. In brief, he wrote a letter to the Sunday Times. Why has it felt that the continued elevation of J.K. Rowling can only be achieved at the expense of other writers? And now here he is criticising a critic or a writer who was talking about how good Rowling is and how fantasy was shit before. Now we learn that prior to Harry Potter, the world of fantasy was plagued with knights and ladies Morris dancing to Greensleeves. He finishes his letter with the Rowling says that she didn't realise the first Potter book was fantasy until after it was published. I'm not the world's greatest expert, but I would have thought that the wizards, witches, trolls, unicorns, hidden worlds, jumping chocolate frogs, owl mail, magic food, ghosts, broomsticks and spells would have given her a clue. Terry Pratchett. Uh, <laughs> now from there, even though the, the point of the letter was to criticise yeah. the article, there was a little bit of a jab, I would say, at Rowling at the end of a little, come on, you know it was fantasy. Yeah, don't be silly. But then... The BBC took that and ran with Pratchett takes swipe at Rowling. Pratchett said later on, it's like, well, most of my letters to the Sunday Times was chiding Les Lev Grossman. But then the BBC website sexed it up to making an attack on JKR herself. When the grown-ups got it, they toned it back down again. But by then, it was out there and spinning fast. And so, yeah, and made it into this whole thing. And it went span multiple papers and articles and various forums, Harry Potter fans slagging off Pratchett and vice versa, you know, 2005, 6, 7 internet drama. Yeah. You know how it went. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think a good quote for that phenomenon might be, Joanna? I don't know. No, oh, don't you? No, sorry. The, 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 the lie can go around the world before the truth is. Oh, no, of course, sorry. That was say the it, dumbest thing. I'll edit it in. <laughs> a lie can get around the world before the truth can get her boots on. Well done. Oh, I like how you call it. You went her. <laughs> is it not her in the book? I could have sworn it I was. I thought it was it. Yeah, quite possibly. I think because they were talking about a goddess of truth at one point, and I yeah. always pictured a, you know, like nice, like knee high boots. Yeah. Like the kind where they need like some lacing and. 
That's why it takes so long for her to get the boots on while the lies are already, like, oh, running around okay, the world. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> she's got to lace them up and shit. God, this is relevant. Um, I just want to hop backwards because Ooh, okay. uh, a point I forgot to make, but more journalism in general, is that I literally, just before we started recording, while I was making breakfast, listened to the latest episode of You're Dead to Me Ooh. on Jules de Bigny. It was like a 17th century bisexual sword fighting opera singer so you can imagine like how oh. brand this was for me possibly my favorite ever episode but the obviously the historian always gets like a minute to just uninterrupted talk have a little rant and one of the things on this episode is that they don't have a lot of contemporary sources of her life and she was talking about the fact that part of the reason this woman became so well known and was written about so much like 100 years later is the advent of newspapers and journalism the press had existed for a while but it was largely like religious pamphlets and this mm -hmm. was around the time newspapers became a thing which meant gossip became a thing because they needed something to talk about and this was also as paris high society space. was coming in and 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 she was i mean she's more than just a space filler she's a bisexual sword fighting opera singer of course yeah, yeah but you know like, who at one point like set fire to a convent to sneak out a girlfriend well, I know what I'm listening to as I cook this evening. I'm going to link to this in the show notes. Listeners. Wait, so far, wait I know this. I know this woman. Yeah, there you I go. Think there's, I one. think there might be a, a noble blood thing about her as well. Yes, it's great. Super. Give it a listen. Uh, someone's just written like a sort of fictional novel that's very heavily based on her. And, ah, oh, good. Um, someone's shit. <laughs> yes. I want the movie. I want the movie of the bisexual sword fighting. I'm writing then. Bisexual sword fighting opera singer. <laughs> I'm not writing a movie. I'm writing a book. All right, fine. Um, Do that then. Do Listen, that, then the movie, then the game. Wait. Okay. What? Oh, shit, I'm writing video games, aren't I? <laughs> That's why I've got uh, Unity. Francine, have you got an obscure reference for Neil? I have! Um, and luckily for me, it does fit into this section, but really it fits into the first section. Um, <laughs> when William Duard is hit by the press, which does not stop, it is he is left with a letter R on his forehead. Yes. Uh, in this section, it says he touched his forehead. The bruise had long ago, had long ago faded, had long ago faded. You put your mark on me. Well, I'm wise to you. Uh, I found in the wiki L space, not the L space annotations, this little annotation in 17th to 18th century England and possibly elsewhere, a common punishment was to brand an offender with a letter denoting what the crime was. One who disseminated slander verbally or libel in print one deemed to be a habitual liar and rumour monger, could have the letter R burnt into their face, a humiliating punishment they would carry for life. Apparently, this happened to publishers of broadsheets who printed things that annoyed influential people who could command such a sanction. Amazing. I know. And this took me some time to find. And so I haven't checked out any sources other than this yet, but I will do. And yes. yeah, I'm, if nothing else, it ought to be true. <laughs> and, that's and that's good enough journalism. for us. <laughs> <laughs> on that note i think we've said everything we could possibly say about the truth that's not true we could do like another hour but, I'm but wait, we've got other things to do. you've got to edit this episode <laughs> i do yeah fun um we are going on our summer holidays hey. as is tradition we'll be taking august mostly off and so we're going to be back on the 5th of september to talk about thief of time <sighs> Um, so until September, dear listeners, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can. You can follow us on Instagram at the Drew Show Make You Fret, on Twitter at Make You Fret Pod, on Facebook at the Drew Show Make You Fret. Join our subreddit community, r slash TTSMYF. Send us your thoughts, queries, castle snacks, and runaway presses, the Drew Shall Make You Fret Pod at gmail.com. If you want to support us financially, go to patreon.com forward slash the Drew Shall Make You Fret and exchange your hard earned pennies for some bonus nonsense. Yeah. Patrons, we will still be appearing in August with our usual yeah. rabbit hole and recipe nonsense and this month's rabbit hole july's rabbit hole will be on the history of the printing press and newspapers 
So if I'm you want more excited. of that nonsense, now's your chance. Join us. I'm wiggling my um, eyebrows. You can't see that, listeners. But that was a very suggestive. <laughs> no. Listeners. <laughs> listeners, that was a marvellously suggestive. Intriguing. <laughs> I'm intrigued by Francine's eyebrows. And until next time, dear listener, nothing has to be true forever. Just for long enough to tell you the truth. But then it's a spoiler. <laughs> I'm not going to tell the listeners that's why we've done it.